You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Because nope. I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Welcome, welcome to the weekend edition of Fearless, a replay uh, and a look back at the fire starters for the week. Uh, I'm Jason Whitlock, your host. Hope you're having a great weekend. Hope you caught this week's show, but if you didn't, let's get you up to date. On Monday, we talked about Andrew Techley Sunberg, uh, the Minneapolis man who was uh, shot and killed by police after he terrorized uh, his apartment building and a woman in his apartment building, Arabella Yarbrough, shooting his gun uh, into her apartment while her two and four year old kids were in the place. Uh, I use it as a t- to talk about why Black Lives Matter should change his name to uh, Black Violence Matter. It's time for a name change. Black Violence Matters. Reaction to the death of Techley Sunberg lays bare the true mission statement of Black Lives Matter. The hashtag movement is dedicated to legitimizing and legalizing black violence, particularly violence that victimizes poor black people. BLM does not care about the lives of black people. The hashtag is the modern day KKK hood, a disguise to conceal the bigotry, depravity, and greed of its supporters. Ben Crump is BLM's imperial wizard, the mushmouth, imbecilic southerner profiting from the peculiar institution of anti-black discrimination. Crump fashions himself as a civil rights attorney, a descendant of Thurgood Marshall and Martin Luther King Jr. Crump is actually Frankenstein, the low IQ creation of Johnny Cochran and Al Sharpton. Marshall and King fought for the rights of working class black people interested in pursuing the American dream. Cochran and Sharpton ballooned their bank accounts fighting for the rights of criminals interested in evading responsibility for their immoral deeds. Crump's latest clients are the adoptive parents of Andrew Techley Sunberg, a 20-year-old man made Apple's slippers killed after a six-hour standoff. Sunberg shot up an apartment building. His bullets pierced a female neighbor's home. The woman was inside cooking dinner for her two children, a two-year-old and a four-year-old. The woman is mixed race. Her kids have a black father. Techley Sunberg nearly murdered three black people, a woman and two children. Police killed a domestic terrorist. The Grand Wizard of Black Violence Matters had a different take on the actions of law enforcement, tweeting, This is Techley Sunberg. Minneapolis Police Department killed this smart, loving, and artistic 20-year-old after an hours-long standoff while he was experiencing a mental health crisis. We need answers from MPD as to why Techley's mental health crisis became a death sentence. The answer is simple. Techley nearly took the lives of a woman and two children, and his actions made it clear he cared far less for his life than the lawyer who can profit from his death. It's really that simple. But we live in an era of organized chaos and anarchy and confusion. So, over the weekend, Sunberg's adoptive parents and Black Violence Matters protesters staged a rally at the scene of Techley's suicide by cop. To their credit, uh, Techley's parents, his adoptive parents, uh, consented to an interview while protesting his death. Take a listen for yourself. 
my heart goes out to that woman. She went through a very traumatic event with those bullets coming through her house. That will affect her for the rest of her life. It will affect her children for the rest of her life. And it, I am so sorry it happened. It is, it is two different incidences. It's the shots going through her house. And what we're here for is technically was shot by the Minneapolis police and died. And I, I hope that we can support her. I mean, she is, she is in great pain. It's obvious she's in great pain. She had the courage to come down here and speak her mind. And she has every right to do that. And I, you know, I don't know what else to say, but um, God be with her. Thanks. I wish I could wrap my arms around her and tell her I am so sorry. I am so sorry she had to experience that. I am so sorry for her pain. And I just grieve for her also. And know that we, is an imperfect human as we're all imperfect humans. He did not deserve to be picked off like a, a dog or an animal or whatever. Uh, look, he put himself in that position. Techly did that. Not the cops, not Arabella uh, Yarbrough. Techly did that. That was assisted suicide. That was suicide by cop. The rally that they participated in justifiably infuriated Arabella Yarbrough, the mom, nearly killed by Techley. She confronted her protesters in one of the greatest moments in the history of Black Lives Matter. Take a listen. There was cases in the hallway. The shot went through my door to the pillar to the kitchen. I was cooking food for my kids. He's dead now, so that can't happen. He shouldn't know. It doesn't matter. He shouldn't have been dead. Y'all should have came and helped him when he was alive. That man was armed. George Floyd was not armed. Breonna Taylor was not armed. Amir Lockett, he was armed and he had his own guns, but they came into his home while he's licensed to carry and killed him. He did not shoot fire. This I absolutely loved her point to the protesters that invaded her neighborhood and are deifying, celebrating this Techly sunburn. Y'all should have been here and helped this man long before he opened fire on me and my kids. Where were y'all then? And she ain't talking to the adoptive parents. And again, those adoptive parents, I have some sympathy for. They adopted a four-year-old Ethiopian kid and, you know, Godspeed, God bless them. Sure, they had great intentions. They clearly, and I'm sorry for saying this, but they clearly failed in some capacity. Maybe they adopted too many kids, because I think they had three of their own and adopted three or four or five others or whatever. Maybe they took on too much, because they certainly failed here. If my son, and again, I'm not a parent, those of you who are, check me if I'm wrong, but if my child opened fire in an apartment building and nearly killed a woman and two kids. And I'm just sorry, I'm not throwing a pity party. If I'm throwing a pity party, it's for that woman and two kids that were nearly killed. But I loved her point about where were y'all before all of this? Because again, there, there's other uh, comments she made that, that were not showing where she said, every night this dude, 
played the loud, he basically terrorized that apartment building, according to Arabella Yarbrough. This dude was a menace. And nobody throwing pity parties, no one coming to help, no one coming to help her out or to quiet this nut job down or to check on him uh, when he was terrorizing everybody in that apartment building. But see, there was no money to be made or attention to be gleaned when Techley Sunberg was alive and breathing. When he was alive, he was just the black Ethiopian kid adopted by well-meaning white folks when he was four years old. Now that he's dead, Black Lives Matter Minnesota can raise money off his sanitized memory and Crump can negotiate a financial settlement with the city for his death. Techley is an uncashed lottery ticket. Arabella Yarbrough is an inconvenient truth. She represents the intentional collateral damage of the eight-year-old Black Lives Matter movement. She's displaced from her home. She and her children will live with the trauma caused by Techley for the rest of their lives. Black neighborhoods are less safe today than they were eight years ago when three lesbian activists started Black Lives Matter in reaction to the death of Trayvon Martin. Black lives haven't been protected. Black violence has. BLM is an organization dedicated to protecting violent black criminals. It's a gang funded by American corporations, marketed as a civil rights movement by corporate media, supported by celebrity elites, and used by middle-class blacks to climb the corporate ladder. It's a hustle founded on lies. Trayvon Martin nearly beat George Zimmerman to death. Michael Brown bullied a store clerk, tried to take a police officer's weapon, and then charged at Darren Wilson. Breonna Taylor's boyfriend shot a police officer in the leg, sparking the deadly confrontation. Rayshard Brooks fired a taser at police. Jacob Blake resisted arrest and grabbed a knife. George Floyd overdosed on drugs. Police are not infallible. They make fatal mistakes and sometimes they intentionally do harm. But let's stop pretending the main mission of Black Lives Matters is to protect black lives. That's a joke. The mission is to destabilize communities, undermine law enforcement, and empower criminals. It's working. Fewer men and women want the responsibility of policing single parent black communities and major cities in general. It's thankless work, thankless, high-risk work. Arabella Yarbrough's frantic screams are the byproduct of a corrupt civil rights movement. The movement cares more about the safety of criminals than women and children. Okay, on Tuesday, gotta be honest, I did a little gloating. Desus and Mero, uh, their Showtime show finally got the plug pulled on it, uh, needed to be pulled a long time ago. Uh, the show's utter failure. Uh, and they're, and as I say it here, close your ears if you're easily offended, House Negroes handcuffed by Hollywood handouts. That's the legacy of Desus and Mero. 20 years ago, back when Spike Lee attempted to disrupt Hollywood's bigoted culture rather than profit from it, the famous director produced the movie Bamboozle. The comedic satire depicted a struggling television network's rise thanks to the surprising success of a black minstrel show that featured two lead black characters, Man Tan and Sleep and Eat, wearing blackface, dancing, and talking jive to each other. Man Tan, the new millennial, millennial minstrel show was the brainchild of a frustrated, Ivy League-educated black executive who created the show to embarrass his white boss. Instead, the show made Pierre Delacroix rich and famous and saved CNS, the fictional Continental News, <laughs> Continental Network system. Here, let's take a look at the trailer to get you guys up to date. I want a show that will make headlines. One, two, three, two, one. 
the Huxtables, Cosby, a genius, revolutionary, but we can't go down that road again. The network does not want to see Negroes on television unless they are buffoons. Have you ever thought about just quitting? I have a contract. The only way I get out of that is if I get fired, and that is what I intend to do. I know you are familiar with menstrual shows, variety shows, like in Living Color. Right, 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 that was dope. Man, tap. The new millennium menstrual show. We're gonna need a little more money for this. This could be bigger than Friends, Ally McBeal, even my boys Amos and Andy. Damn. You're putting white actors in black face. We're using black actors with blacker faces. This fall. Right on, man. Yeah, great show. You won't believe what's coming to your television. Sleep and Eat and Mantan are lazy and unemployed. Do your stuff. But we are certainly not saying anything about the entire African American community. What's sweeping the nation? And what's coloring? The way you see the world. Yo, we can't let this injustice go by, man. Not this time, man. You know what I'm saying? Nah, man. You know what I'm saying? You know what I mean? You know what I'm saying? anything to do with anything black for at least a week. <laughs> Bamboozled, released in 2000, foreshadowed real-life network television in the aftermath of The Cosby Show and The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. Hollywood pivoted from showcasing black traditional families living the American dream to leaning into black debauchery, ignorance, and anti-American sentiment. Hollywood followed hip-hop's depiction of black America. And that explains why Showtime invested four years and millions of dollars into Desus and Marrow, the Mantan and Sleepin' of talk television. Yesterday, Showtime announced it was not renewing Desus and Marrow for a fifth season. Their late night show flopped four years ago. It was stillborn, dead on arrival with Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez as its first guest. It debuted in February of 2020 uh, to 150,000 viewers and quickly descended into utter irrelevance, drawing as few as 30,000 viewers some weeks. Given its access to guests, Barack Obama, Joe Biden, Kamala Harris, Denzel Washington, Chris Rock, Little Nas X, John Legend, Samuel L. Jackson, Matt Damon, Idris Elba, Stacey Abrams, Megan Rapino, among many others appeared on the show. Despite all that, the show collapsed and was a failure. And Desus and Merrill, <laughs> it's rather stunning. Showtime tried everything new time slots, more marketing, additional programming, fawning news stories, appearances at celebrity events. No one watched. Desus and Merrill couldn't build an audience because the alleged comedians weren't funny, smart, profound, or bold. They were a stereotype. They cursed, said the N-word, giggled like they were high, and spewed the left-wing and alphabet mafia talking points Showtime handed them. Here's what should appear on their tombstone. House Negroes handcuffed by Hollywood handouts. That's what should be on the tombstone of Desus and Merrill. It won't though. The Hollywood trade publications and social media apps portrayed the end of Desus and Merrill like it was the breakup of Sonny and Cher, Ike and Tina Turner, the Allman Brothers, or EPMD, Eric and Parrish making dollars. Variety Magazine claimed Desus and Merrill split up, ending Showtime series after four seasons. People Magazine said the pair 
ended the show to pursue individual creative endeavors. The New York Times followed the agreed upon narrative reporting that the show upended the traditional model for late night talk shows. No outlet that I could find mentioned the show was a complete ratings failure, unfunny, and never made news. Desus and Merrill made Bill Simmons' failed HBO show Any Given, Sun Any Given Wednesday seem like the second coming of The Sopranos. HBO canceled Simmons' show 17 episodes into its first season. Any Given Wednesday averaged 203,000 viewers. Desus and Merrill failed to reach that many viewers when Barack Obama granted them an interview. Again, HBO dumped Simmons in season one. Desus and Merrill, despite dwindling bad ratings, got four years. If we're gonna compare the end of Desus and Merrill to a music breakup, let's compare it to NWA. Negroes with no aptitude. That's what Hollywood prefers. Negroes with no aptitudes, with no aptitude will say and think whatever they're told. Handouts come with handcuffs. Like Mantan and Sleep and Eat in Bamboozled, Desus and Merrill did not earn their network TV shows. They had a very brief flirtation with relevance and success on Vice. Showtime plucked the player because they would be easy to control during the election cycle. In 2019, all the corporate TV networks, from Fox News to CNN to Comedy Central to all the way down to your local news station, doubled down on removing Donald Trump from the White House. Showtime hired Desus and Merrill to serve as blackmail operatives for the Democratic Party. Showtime and the DNC believe black people, particularly black men, are stupid. They basically think we're retarded. Showtime paid Desus and Merrill to be stupid, to be retarded, to put on a weekly minstrel show that featured them engaging with AOC, Stacey Abrams, Joe Biden, Pete Buttigieg, Maxine Waters, Cory Booker, Bernie Sanders, Ta-Nehisi Coates, and Anthony Fauci. Desus and Merrill, mediocre comedians and less than mediocre thinkers stood as reminders that cool and righteous young black men support Democrats, the LGBTQ movement, and Black Lives Matter. They're paid influencers. The problem is the show lacked the reach to influence people. So after four years, Showtime moved on and will seek out a new pair of house Negroes to handcuff. More than likely, Showtime will try to expand the All the Smoke podcast featuring Matt Barnes and Steven Jackson into a late night talk show. They're tall, athletic, better looking versions of Desus and Merrill. They love drugs, they love money, they believe hip hop is a religion and culture capable of saving black people. They know virtually nothing about politics. They'll happily do what they're told and serve as black male stereotypes they can be easily bamboozled. All right, uh, Wednesday, mm, Tennessee Harmony was what we planned to do, and it just turned into Jason Whitlock Harmony. Uh, I go on and on and on for an hour and 45 minutes about Loretta, a woman who wrote me a message over Instagram who clearly didn't get the show, and so I took the entire show to explain the show and to offer rebuttal to Loretta I doubt if we're going to uh, play this whole hour and 45, but Wednesday's show was special. Here's a taste of it. I got a letter or an email, a direct message that stopped me in my tracks and, and made me go, well, hold on. I offer no solutions. And I hear this. She's not the first person to make this allegation that I talk about problems without offering a solution. And, and this stops me in my track because I'm like, do these guys even understand the point of this show? Is the actual message of the show going over people's head? And so I'm going to take today, and if necessary, tomorrow, and if necessary, the day after that, to unpack what it is we're doing here at Fearless and the solution that we're offering. But I want to start by reading the letter 
that the young woman uh, sent me over Instagram. I believe her name is Loretta. I, I thought about inviting her on the show, and I hope Loretta's watching because maybe we do need to have Loretta on the show because based off this letter, she is a longtime follower of my work. But uh, without further ado, let me share what she wrote to me. Uh, let me say this again, and this is on a... I posted something on Instagram, a picture and a graphic with a quote from from about, you know, what's going on with African-Americans and black culture. And this was her response. Let me say this again about the fact you enjoy discussing problems in the African-American community, but never offer any solutions. We can go to the Internet or YouTube to find all the speeches possible. Black Lives Matter was started in 2014. Many African-Americans don't support BLM. Their behavior is their responsibility. In New York City, they aren't even active because the mayor doesn't support it. I see you showing videos and pictures. I've never seen you in any of these videos. You have a great concern about fatherless children and crime in American communities. Everyone will read this and all the other posts you put up. It isn't going to solve the problem. How often do you visit these inner city African-American communities, communities and offer resources or support? You're an African-American male who has achieved. Why don't you give back? You criticize LeBron James, but at least he created a school. I listened to your video about how LeBron James can't say he faces racism because he is wealthy. You stated, quote, I can just throw my keys to a Spanish person and have them park my car. Since you spend so much time on the problem, maybe you can spend equal time on the solution. Let us know what you have been doing to help. And this, this ending part where she talks about you can throw your keys to a Spanish person and have them park my car, this is the indicator that like, whoa, this person has been following me for a long time. She's talking about something I said on Speak for Yourself years ago, three or four years ago. Uh, she, she, she's not talking about this fearless program. Following my work, my work is obviously having an impact. It obviously frustrates her, the, the focus of my work. There's, let me address a couple other things here in terms of how often do you visit these inner city, inner city African-American communities and offer resources or support. I don't visit these inner city African communities because I live in one. I live in a zip code that, based on my research here in Nashville, is 40% black. Uh, I'm not living off in, and again, I live in, uh, I, w- I want to be clear here, live in a very nice place, very nice building. It's a high rent area. But I live in downtown Nashville. Th- there are black people everywhere. I, I'm not, I can walk to the hood uh, very easily. The hood can walk to my neighborhood very easily. The problems that are associated with the hood. Visit my street. I've talked about that. So I don't have to visit anywhere. I live there. That's one. As it relates to, and this always goes, what support and resources have you offered? I don't operate that way in terms of, I'm not Colin Kaepernick, I'm not LeBron James, I'm not trying to build a brand by, hey, I donated this much money to a school. Hey, I started a I Know Your Rights camp or whatever. I, I don't do all these public things looking for public affirmation about what it is I do. If you follow this show as closely, or me as closely as you say you do, these questions answer themselves because they come up organically in terms of what I do. And I don't put this information out there as some sort of, hey, look how great of a human being I am. I don't put it out there like that. But if you follow this show and follow the conversation and my work over the course, speak for yourself, go back to ESPN. 
You wouldn't ask this question about what it is I'm doing. You would have heard it. And I predict you have heard it. I'm going to cite just a couple of examples, not to be defensive, but just to try to explain to people that like this is an unfair accusation and assertion. When, when, when someone has shared with you over the course, when I was on Speak for Yourself, it's come up on this show when we've talked about China. Uh, Wendell Brown, black kid from Detroit that played football at Ball State University 20 years after me. This is a kid who got arrested and jailed in China for three years. Not saying this bragging. I'm just, it's come up on this show. It's been written about in media platforms. I paid $40,000 to get the man out of a Chinese prison. This is no secret. The number of kids that I've adopted, helped get through school, transition in life. But I don't have to, I don't do it in that way to be public because I'm not trying to build a brand. The stuff does come up on this show. You follow my work. So I just wanna put that to the side. Uh, so I don't need to visit because I live. And in terms of what I'm doing, resources and support, I'm, I'm gonna give one more example without naming names. Look at the people I give opportunities to. Some of them have virtually no qualifications for the opportunities that I granted them. I'm not going to put any names to it. But again, if you're following the show, following me, some of this stuff is just obvious and staring you in the face. I break my back giving people opportunities who don't meet traditional qualification standards. I put, I back up the beliefs that I espouse with taking real chances on real people who most of America would take a dump on and be like, are you crazy? What are you thinking? I'm gonna leave it alone because I don't wanna sound uh, defensive because I'm really not. I'm very comfortable in, in, in what I do and how I operate. Now, to your bigger questions about what, but I never offer any solutions. And this is what really upset me. And it's just like, is what I'm doing just going completely over her head and others. I am crystal clear about what the solution is. His name is Jesus Christ. We talk constantly on this show about a biblical worldview. That's the solution. You may not like it. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady, a Netflix live event happening May 5th, hosted by Kevin Hart. The seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. All right, so now that you understand the show, uh, Thursday... I piggybacked off the Wednesday show and brought Dave Chappelle into the discussion. A theater in Minneapolis uh, canceled. I think it's called First Avenue. Famous theater in Minneapolis canceled Dave Chappelle's show uh, because they want to cancel culture critics. Uh, here's my fire starter from Thursday about Dave Chappelle. Comedians and ministers have let America down. They haven't kept the public square open for uncomfortable conversations. They're folding to the culture that wants to silence everybody and everything. And so culture critics, critics 
are constantly under attack because the left, the satanic movement that's going on in America and across the globe, they don't want their culture analyzed and criticized. And that's why Dave Chappelle is in the crosshairs. He's a culture critic. His comedy is about uh, critiquing popular culture, mainstream culture. That's what all great comedians do. And that's why they're important, nearly as important as ministers, because they, they create a safe space in an environment where the rest of us can have these uncomfortable conversations and get at the truth. Again, they, comedians, ministers protect truth, free speech, and the public square. That's why ministers and comedians are under attack. And, and again, I'm gonna connect it all the way to yesterday's conversation about Tony Evans. And, and the minister Tony Evans was my jumping off point yesterday, and he talked about, are you willing to draw a line in the sand as a Christian, as a believer, or will you just bend to the culture and bend to the culture and bend to the culture and try to make your religion fit and your religious views fit into the culture? And he said, there will be no favor you will receive no blessings. You will descend into this hell on earth that we're descending into if you're not willing to draw a line in the sand. This show, me, I'm about drawing a line in the sand. I'm about criticizing and exposing the culture because I understand the power and the necessariness of confession. And so Dave Chappelle and what he does, I wanna connect this back to Dave and what he does, like a minister. When ministers and comedians talk about uncomfortable truths and point out uncomfortable truths and ironies and, and, and hypocrisies and stupidity that go on in, in, a, in a culture, it's a form of confession. It's a form of drawing a line in the sand. Hey, there's a price you have to pay for this level of stupidity. And as it relates to the transgender issue and this whole movement we have going on globally, but most acutely right here in America, then we don't know what a woman is anymore. It's just a vibe. It's just a feeling. Anybody can be a woman. Anybody can be a man. It doesn't matter your sexual organs. It doesn't matter your chromosomes. It doesn't matter what God made you inside the womb. You get to decide. This is insanity. Dave Chappelle, through his comedy, has been pointed it out, and now he's under a vicious attack. They wanna cancel him because they want to cancel confession. They don't want us dealing with our flaws. Let me read the statement from First Avenue, and, and <laughs> this is a comedy club or theater in Minneapolis, and Minneapolis is like becoming the new San Francisco. I mean, Minneapolis is just woke and crazy. I, I think George Floyd accentuated this, but clearly these seeds had already been planted long before George Floyd because man, have they taken root and blossom. This is like a bamboo tree. It grew under earth and then once it got above ground, it's growing uh, four inches every two hours or something. It, this is crazy, but here's what First Avenue had to say about canceling uh, Dave Chappelle. Uh, to, the Dave Chappelle show tonight at First Avenue has been canceled and is moving to Varsity Theater. To staff, artists, and our community, we hear you and we are sorry. We know we must hold ourselves to the highest standards and we know that we let you down. We are not just a black box with people in it and we understand that First Ave is not just a room but, meaning, but meaningful beyond our walls. The First Avenue team and you have worked hard to make our venues the safest spaces in the country and we will continue with that mission. We believe in diverse voices 
in the freedom of artistic expression, but in honoring that, we lost sight of the impact this would have. We know there are some who will not agree with this decision. You are welcome to send feedback. If you're a ticket holder, look for an email with information, your tickets, blah, blah, blah. That's First Avenue folding to the woke mob. And, and Minneapolis, it's not shocking, uh, Minneapolis has a transgender uh, city council president calls himself Andrea Jenkins. Andrea Jenkins uh, wrote a poem uh, criticizing uh, Dave Chappelle. And again, their political structure in Minneapolis can't put applied pressure on this First Avenue and Dave Chappelle under attack. Their transgender the man pretending to be a woman who's their city council president attacking Dave Chappelle through Palm and trying to silence him. They don't want us talking about what they're doing. They don't want us analyzing the culture they're imposing. They're trying to shut down Dave Chappelle. Before I play th this poem from this transgender man, I, I want to just piggyback off yesterday's conversation and, and explain to you why confession is important. And I, and I thought of this yesterday. We have a prayer call uh, every Wednesday at 530. It, it, people that work on the show, uh, people that work with us in, in Kansas City. And, and, and I was thinking about this yesterday during our prayer call about why Prayer is important and why confession is important. And as I like to do, I, I, I thought about myself and what's going on with me. And, and I want to explain this to you all uh, be, because I don't want you to think the solution we're offering, Christianity, is some sort of magic dust, magic spooky energy in the air uh, that when I talk about a biblical worldview and adopting the philosophies and the guidance and submitting yourself in obedience to God and, and the gospel, these, this is a real thing. It has tangible results. The reason why you humble yourself in prayer, the reason why you publicly confess your sins is because it compels you to do better. I'll give you the real life example. It's why I constantly on this show and in my private life, constantly talk about my gluttony and my battle of the bulge and trying to get healthy. I used to not talk about it. I used to, this used to be the big open secret that I just wore around everywhere. And, and Justin, if you have time, uh, while I'm doing this, pull up the, the picture of me at ESPN in the blue T-shirt when I'm damn near 400 pounds. Pull that up and, and put it on screen. I walked around like this all the time. It's a big open secret. Like, man, Whitlock is struggling with gluttony. It's obvious. Look at him. And I walked around, but no one would talk about it. Everyone would just act like it wasn't there because I acted like it wasn't there. I acted like it was a non-issue. Everybody could see it. Look at that. Who couldn't see it like, holy cow, Whitlock. Stick a pin in Whitlock and let the air out. Let some of that gravy out. Everybody could see it. I wouldn't talk about it. I ignored it. Pretended like it was no problem. But over the course of the last year, for the first time I got comfortable where I talk about it Constantly, I confess the sin of my gluttony. Constantly, that's what I'm doing right now. I pray about it, but I talk about it. And it's a way of keeping me focused on what the problem is so that I address the problem. See, when you run away from it, hide from it, don't talk about it, don't confess it, it's a way of avoiding it and just hoping it goes away on its own. And so it not only changes me and my attitude and my approach, but by me talking about it publicly so much, 
It changes the way that people engage with me. Take my mother. When I go home to Indianapolis, my mother's an awesome cook. She knows all the foods that I love. But because I'm constantly talking about gluttony and my battle with the bulls, now when I come home, the food she prepares for me is in line with that and I don't even have to ask for it. We had, there's a woman named Ricky that works with us here at The Blaze, she works in Dallas. She came to Nashville to hang out with her girlfriend, stopped by the office, and she brought, as a gift, she brought healthy snacks to the studio. And it's because I keep publicly confessing, I'm battling my gluttony, I'm trying to lose weight, she can see the results. It, it, when you change and when the way you talk changes, you create an energy around you that people will adapt to and respond to, and they'll start engaging with you in a way that benefits you. But if you ignore it and everybody can see the problem, everybody, I, I go to somebody's house or they come visit me, Oh, let's go to Biscuit Love here in Nashville. Oh, let's go to Martin's Barbecue here in Nashville. Oh, uh, let's hit up this fast food joint. Oh, let's, let me cook you X, Y, and Z. And it's because I was ignoring my problem. Everybody could see it and they thought, oh, well, he must be happy being that big. So let me feed him food. The reason I talk about me and strip clubs it's a way, and, and get my friends acknowledge it. And get, no one hits me up and says, hey man, let's come on out to Vegas and let's hit up Spearmint Rhino. And I got friends that still love to do that. And I don't judge them, I'm not criticizing them, I'm not, but they don't ask me anymore because I have publicly confessed my problem, what I'm dealing with, and the direction I'm going. And so they respond to me differently. They don't make those invitations. Any, and they, I was the king of it. My reputation among my friends, like, oh my God, if you get married, make sure Whitlock throws your bachelor party. It's gonna be off the hook. They don't ask me that no more. Again, confession. Again, this is what Tony Evans, me expounding on his point, he said, draw a line in the sand if you want favor. I'm saying confess your sins if you want favor, and they're trying to stop us from confessing our sins. They don't want us in a spirit of favor. They don't want God to favor us. They don't want us to do better. And so they don't want us to talk about this satanic culture they have built for us. Friday, I threw the curveball of all curveballs. We didn't have a fire starter. We had a fire extinguisher. We ended Friday's show with me doubling down on my explanation of the show, the importance of comedy uh, to what we're doing with the Fearless Army. I used Bill Burr and his attack, his mocking of the pro-abortion crowd uh, to get into that. I also threw in a little Joe Biden and Tiara Mack. Here's a further explanation of the Fearless Army and the Fearless Show. You know what, I'm gonna do this from time to time. This is a good way to put a button on this week and this week of shows. Because I believe it was Tuesday or Wednesday, my memory's a bit fuzzy. I went into the long explanation about the importance of ministers and an explanation about this show, Loretta, had written me uh, that or posted that message on Instagram, you know, criticizing me and why am I so critical on black culture? And it, yeah, it was Wednesday, I think. And I just did the whole hour and 45 minute show, just me, one, starting with an explanation of the show and what we're trying to do, and then giving you real life examples of things in the news cycle that kind of back up why I'm doing things and what we're doing in the show. And so, uh, I, I think it's important from time to time that I explain, and maybe it's a weekly, just explanation like, here's what we're doing in the show, here's why we're doing it, just to give people a better feeling and understanding of me and the show. And so 
if you on Thursday, I then pivoted to comedians and Dave Chappelle and why I think comedians are important. And I said this at the very beginning. If you go back, I think, and listen to uh, Uncle Jimmy and I did interviews at the very beginning or where I let him interview me about the show. And so these are like original, original episodes of Fearless. And it was just talking about what Fearless was gonna be. And then, and so at that time, I explained comedy and ministers and how they're the gatekeepers of free speech and the public discourse and truth. And, and so, you know, you give that explanation at the beginning and then you start executing the show and you think like, oh, everybody gets it. And, and then you realize, well, no, everyone doesn't get it. You got, it's almost like a wife or a girlfriend or a spouse or whatever. It's like, oh, can you just tell them you love them once? Oh, remember baby, on our wedding date, I told you that I loved you. Don't you remember me telling you? And it's like, well, no, you need to tell me all the time, maybe every day. And, and that's what I have to figure out about myself. I need to explain the show more often, what we're doing, because I'm asking you guys to join a movement, to join the Fearless Army. I'm asking you to go on a journey with me and the show as we try to push America a better direction. And, and so I just want to restate again the importance of comedy and why I want this show to have a sense of humor. And, and we saw, I just I saw another example of this uh, on my social media feed either yesterday or today. Bill Burr, the comedian Bill Burr, uh, did, has done a comedy routine where he analogizes uh, the abortion issue to baking a cake. And he basically attacks the pro-abortion crowd and mocks them. And I, I just want to play a small snippet of Bill Burr doing some comedy around the issue of abortion. And then I want to talk to you about why it's important. It's not a baby yet. That's what they say, which may or may not be true. I don't know. I'm not a doctor. But I'll tell you, my gut tells me that doesn't make sense. <laughs> It's not a baby yet. That would be like if I was making a cake and I poured some batter in a pan and I put it in the oven and then five minutes later you came by and you grabbed the pan and you threw it across the floor and I went, what the f*** ruined my birthday cake? And then you were like, well, I wasn't a cake yet. It's like, well, it would have been. If you didn't do what you just did, there would have been a cake in 50 minutes. Something happened to that cake, you cake murderer, son of a And so comedy is important. They get at truths. They make points in a different way with people laughing, but it's very profound. And it opens up room for us to have a conversation about abortion or any of these important issues. And so I keep saying th th this show is about ministers and comedy. And it sounds silly, and I know it's hard to understand, but again, these ministers from the pulpit and from the church should be protectors of truth, protectors of free speech, protectors of public discourse. They work in that religious lane. Comedians work in the entertainment, in the culture, in the pop culture lane, and do the exact same thing. They do it differently. They do it from a secular point of view for, for the most part. But they, these two groups should work hand in hand. And as I talked to you guys on Wednesday about Tony Evans and why I built the show around something Tony Evans responded, uh, inspired in me. Tony Evans, I'm talking about the, the famous minister out of Dallas, Texas. Uh, and, and so I, I was trying to explain how religion and culture and that culture should actually back up the Judeo-Christian worldview, and, and they should work hand in hand in protecting our culture. And that's what Bill Burr's doing. I, I don't think that's Bill Burr's intent. I don't know he wakes up like, hey, I'm gonna, he's just trying to be funny. But comedians point out irony and they mock stupidity. And this whole abortion thing, 
of, of like, oh, we're not really killing a baby. He's pointing out that that's stupid. Yes, you are. Now deal with that fact. And once we're forced to deal with the facts, then we make better decisions. But if we allow people to create a false reality, take us off into a fantasy world where a baby inside the womb isn't a baby, it's a fetus, it's a collection of cells. It's what, now you're off in fantasy world and that's how you start making bad decisions. That's how you get involved in a satanic cult and you don't even know it because they've played with your mind, they've played with the truth. Oh, that's not a baby, that's a clump of cells. That's a fetus, that's not a baby. And that's how you can say, I'm a Christian, but I'm pro-abortion. Well, Bill Burr is basically saying, no, 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 no. You're killing babies. That's inconsistent with your religious beliefs. Don't sit here and tell me that that's not a baby. Because again, if I put a bunch of batter into a deal and put it into an oven and I'm on bait and you throw it out, you've killed a cake. It's brilliant. And so, and, and I'm sure the Bill Burr's curse words were bleeped out uh, on the show, but you can go find it and find the stuff. And, and maybe we didn't bleep it out. Hopefully we didn't. But I just want to be crystal clear with everyone about me as well. And, and, and this isn't me at all trying to run away from uh, my responsibilities as a Christian. But as I've talked to you guys repeatedly about, I'm on my walk and I'm on my journey and I'm not making excuses, but, but I grew up listening to Richard Pryor. I grew up uh, fantasizing about being Richard Pryor or Eddie Murphy. There's a part of my sense of humor that's very crude. And I'm, I try not to show it as much, particularly here on this show. I try to represent the Christian part of me. But as I've told all of you all repeatedly on this show, my grandmother, Mama Lovey Kennedy, had an enormous impact on me and my worldview. That's the Christian side of me, which I'm embracing and running towards as fast as I can. But there's the other side of me that's a reflection of my father and the Masterpiece Lounge. And again, it's why Donald Trump doesn't offend me because I grew up at the Masterpiece Lounge around working class black men, factory workers, black women factory workers. And we talked and they talked no different than Donald Trump. And I'm never going to demonize those people because I love them. The Masterpiece Lounge in Indianapolis is my favorite place on earth, or was when my father owned it for all those years, and Jimmy's J Bar J before that. So I say all that to say, if you're coming here expecting me all the time, to present myself like I'm a minister, you're going to be disappointed. I'm going to support ministers. That's why Bobby and Anthony are on this show. I'm going to support men and women, but men who are in uh, marriages and family structures that are trying to be an expression of Christian values like Delano and Dave Shannon. But I'm also going to represent the people that I grew up loving and loving being around. And not all of them were perfect Christians. Many of them were like the people that frequented the Masterpiece Lounge. And so there's part of my sense of humor that may not meet your ideal Christian values. And I apologize for that. I'm trying to do better. I say that because on my Instagram yesterday, I posted a funny meme about Joe Biden and his COVID test. I combined it with 
the Tierra Mac, the uh, Rhode Island woman, a state senator, and her little twerking video. And, and I just want to tell you, the, reiterate the point of comedy. And we don't have to leave that up forever, but I, I just said uh, they leaked Joe Biden's COVID test. That's how they tested him for COVID <laughs> with the twerking Tierra Mac. And I'm sorry, it's hilarious, but it has a point to it. And this is the importance of comedy. And I'm trying to shove it in people's face that look, this young black woman who's a Democrat and whose purpose in life is to be black and queer and to educate your kids or kids in Rhode Island about queer affirming identity and blah, blah, blah. She thinks it's appropriate to take a video of herself upside down twerking. That's the Democratic Party, and that's what they think of black women. And I'm throwing it in your face because you need to deal with it. That she thinks that's appropriate. She thinks that's what the Democratic Party is all about. Because again, that, that's vote T.R. Mike. That's what she says at the end of this deal. And her goal in life, she's talked about it. She's done it as a teacher and just in politics, her mission is to teach kids how to be queer and discover their queer selves and let them learn about all their gender and identity issues. That's her goal in life. That's the Democrat, that's the left. And that's, I'm going to shove that in your faces and make you deal with it. On the other hand, we have a president sitting in the White House, and I'm gonna make you deal with this as well. His daughter wrote in a diary that this man used to take showers with her at a time when she thought it was inappropriate, and she alleges in her diary that she feels like it contributed to her sexual dysphoria, her promiscuity, and her drug problem that landed her in rehab. That's Joe Biden's daughter that said this. And there's all kinds of videos and pictures of Joe Biden inappropriately sniffing the hair and the body of women and young girls. I'm going to throw that in your face and make you deal with it, that that's who we have sitting in the White House. And so, now put my meme back up again. That's what this meme is trying to tell you. We got a dude in the White House who's on tape, on camera, everywhere, sniffing women. His daughter, who had to go to drug rehab, uh, says this man used to shower with her when she was a child in an inappropriate fashion. Everybody wants to ignore it and pretend like it didn't happen. Oh, no, I don't. And just, nope, that's got, the media made it up. It's all facts. It's all on camera. It's all on tape. It's all in her diary. So I combine these two to make the point that the Democratic Party's got some black queer woman who thinks twerking upside down halfway naked is the appropriate thing to do. And they got a president who might be a pedophile and can't control himself from sniffing all over young girls. That's the brilliance of comedy. And that's why they say a picture's worth a thousand words. Because I'm shoving all that down your face to shake you up out of that satanic cult that you're in. And so I, I, I for those of you that were offended and those of you that think I violated every Christian principle that you thought I held, you're going to have to deal with it. That's, this show is going to do that. I have a sense of humor. I'm going to use that sense of humor to make points about this satanic cult that we have going on in America. Go watch something else if you don't want the truth shoved in your face from a biblical point of view and from a comedic point of view. 
I'm not going to do everything right. That's not what I've claimed. I'm on a journey, I'm trying. But right now I'm trying to shake people up and wake them up and put it in their face in a way that they have to deal with it. If I'm wrong, let God judge me, let God deal with me. Uh, I appreciate your feedback or whatever, but I am who I am. I'm uh, Joyce and Jimmy Whitlock's son and my father and the Masterpiece Lounge and just his had an incredible influence over me, a good influence. And my grandmother, Lovey Kennedy, had an enormous impact on me. And this show's a reflection of that. All right, go to youtube.com slash Jason Whitlock. Uh, hit those subscribes, hit the likes. Uh, if you're on Apple or Spotify, hit the like and subscription buttons as well. Give me that five-star review on Apple. Leave a comment. I read all of your comments. All right, uh, we'll see you next week. Please.